So what could possibly be better than gathering like this, singing praises to the Lord? What a blessing to be here together. And, you know, I know I take it for granted probably every single time. Uh, and I uh, you know that's, we're all tempted to take this lightly. But what a special gift it is from the Lord that we would be here together singing praises to him. That's what we're going to be doing forever. And uh, if that does not sound appealing to you, that is suggestive of a problem. For Christians, it is a great joy to worship the Lord. It is our heart to worship him, to meditate on his truth and to be with his people. That will be the new heaven and the new earth. Maybe there will be golf and hunting. Well, probably not hunting, but uh, <laughs> golf, not hunting, uh, but golf and uh, Whatever it is that you enjoy, there will be many, many new earth blessings unimaginably uh, in the new heaven and the new earth. But what will define our joy, what will define our experience will be like what we're doing this morning. Praising God, meditating on him. And by the way, his uh, glory is inexhaustible. And infinite, so we will be doing that forever. We will need forever to praise him because we could never get to the bottom of that, of his glory. So if you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11. That's our text for this morning. Romans 8, 5 through 11. When I first started to uh, preach through Romans... People would ask me, you know, is this going to take 10 years or whatever? Um, I don't think it will take that long. But, you know, one of the commitments that I had early on was I really wanted to follow the logic of Paul. And I did not want to preach Romans like a systematic theology. So I didn't want to come to the word faith and preach a sermon on faith. Come to the word grace, preach a sermon. Come to reconciliation and preach a sermon on that so that uh, there would be a sermon on every two or three words. We did that for the first verse, so you may have thought, oh wow, Romans 1.1, we've been here for a little while. Uh, but what I've tried to do as we've gone through this epistle is to take the apostles' logic very seriously so that we don't treat such small bits that we lose uh, the logic of his argument. And we, we keep in mind these various bits that Paul is building. He's building, he's a great master builder, the apostle, and he's putting together this building of the glory of the gospel. And we want to follow that. We want to follow him in that logic. So it helps to take on substantial enough bits in order to do that. So that has been my objective from the beginning. And this morning we'll take on these verses, verses 5 through 11. I hope that each of you and your family had a very restful and worshipful Easter or Resurrection Sunday last week. And today we find ourselves still very much immersed in the theme of Easter. Uh, and this will be the case for several weeks as we go through this, uh, this chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 8. And, you know, it reminds us that Easter is not something that we just come to celebrate one day a year because we're still very much in Easter right here this morning as we continue going through Romans 8. And we're going to be here for a while so explicitly, we will be dealing with the themes of Easter. I started the sermon last week by highlighting the significance of Romans 8. This is a chapter in the New Testament, in the Bible as a whole, that has been considered the high point of high points. And we have a lot of texts like that. You know, my mind goes to John 3 or John 17. Or the Sermon on the Mount, just as an entire chunk. Uh, we also think of Ephesians 2, and 1 even. So many texts that are just real high points. But this chapter in Romans has been regarded as probably the highest peak, if you will, uh, in all of Scripture. We recognize that we are on a mountain peak from the very beginning. As we come to the first few words of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you know as soon as you step foot 
in Romans 8 that you're already going to be smacked in the face by all kinds of glories. Last week, we ended with verse 4. So we started there in verse 1, and we ended in verse 4, which tells us that God's work in sending Christ and saving us from sin through Christ's sacrifice has one big purpose. You'll remember as we entered verse 4, it was a, a purpose clause. He started with those words, in order that, and it goes like this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we ended last week by discussing the importance of holiness or sanctification. And this is one of the things that I said last week that uh, I think in some circles of evangelicalism and even in reformed evangelicalism that there is a, a kind of turning uh, kind of taking lightly, taking lightly the, what the Bible calls us to in terms of holiness and sanctification. And what we saw last week as we came to our justification, uh, no condemnation any longer for those in Christ. And as we saw what God did in history in verse 3 in sending his son to make Christ an, a sin offering for us, putting sin to death in the death of Christ, what we saw is that all of that our justification and the grounds for our justification in the events of Easter are for the purpose that we be holy. That's an amazing call to holiness. So here's the thing. Whatever your theology was before last week, my hope is that you were teachable in that you allowed Romans 8 verse 4 to impact your understanding of the gravity of holiness. The gravity of as a Christian living a life that honors the Lord. So holiness, sanctification. God saves us for the purpose that we would be set apart to him. Loving his law and living it out from the heart. That is what it means to become sanctified, is to increasingly become one who loves God's law and lives it out from the heart. That is why Christ died for us to make us worshipers like that. Let me say this, and this may strike you <clears throat> as a little bit controversial, but I think that's what Paul's saying here. The law is the goal. You say, well, hold on a second. We've spent all this time talking about how it's not about the law. It's not about the law. We're not under the law. We're moving away from the law. Now you're talking about the law is the goal. Well, what will help you understand the truth of that statement is, is this. When we say the law of God, we are essentially saying God's revealed will for human life, for human living. So when we say that the law is the end goal, what we're saying is that the manifestation of God's revealed will in human living is the end goal. Now that makes sense because we know that's what Christ-likeness is. We know that that's what it will be like when we are with him in glory. So the law is the goal. But here's what Paul has been doing. If you're wondering what's all this law business up to this point, what Paul has been doing is this. He's been saying that you can't get to the law through the law, if that makes sense. So Paul hasn't thrown away the law. He hasn't trashed the law. He simply trashed the road to the fulfillment of the law in the law. What he has said is that it is not by way of the written code of the law, trying to keep that and abide by that meticulously, that we come to actually be those who live the law. He's shown us that in various ways, that instead that is a road that leads to the knowledge of sin and the activation of sin and the conquering of oneself by sin. That road does not lead to its intended destination. That is what Paul has been explaining. You have to get on a different road. You have to be on a different road if the law is to be realized, fulfillment of the law is to be realized in one's life. And that law, or that road, is the crucifixion of Jesus for our justification and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
That is the road that actually leads to a life that loves and abides by God's holy law, God's revealed will. So I hope that kind of makes sense of what we've been talking about all along. We've been talking about the law, being dead to it, and yet delighting in it. What in the world is going on? I hope that that helps to explain for us what it is that Paul has done and is doing as he now kind of moves past that discussion. An example of that would be Romans 9, verse 31. Paul says that Israel, listen to this, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching that law. That is what happens in the life of a Christian. We do succeed in reaching that law. In the fulfillment of the law in Christ, the imputation of his righteousness to us, and in the manifestation of that law-keeping in our lives as we grow in Christ-likeness. But it is not by keeping the law, by pursuing the law, that we come to that point. The only way this law-loving and law-living life happens is by the Spirit, period. It's by the Spirit. In the lives of those who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That is where verse 4 ended and that is where we are headed this morning as we come to verses 5 through 11. It is only by the Spirit that the law of God, the righteous requirement of the law, the holiness of life, right living that matches with God's will for humanity, it is only by the Spirit of God that that takes shape in a person's life. So the title for the sermon this morning is In the Flesh Versus In the Spirit. We're going to look at three things, three questions this morning that are answered by this text, and you'll see those up here on the slide. So in the flesh versus in the Spirit, we're going to look at how it works who we were and who we are. So you see some repetition here from last week, but also from previous weeks. Paul is coming at this big idea of the gospel and the application of the gospel to us from various angles. Remember, this is the most extensive treatment that we have in all of Scripture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this epistle that Paul wrote to the Romans. So let me say a couple of things about this passage as a whole before we dig into it. First is, what is the overall makeup of this passage? And I think the answer to that is, it is a text of defining and contrasting. This is a text that we're about to read where we are seeing things defined for us. We're getting precise descriptions of reality. The sinful person, the believer, who still struggles with indwelling sin but who is a saint of God. We're getting definitions, and as Paul defines, he sets things apart. He puts them in contrast. This is what this is. This is what that is. See the difference. We've seen Paul do that throughout, and here again we have another one of those sorts of passages. So that's the makeup of the passage, but what is the overall effect of the passage? What should you, Christian, walk away with this morning? What is the, the, the great message of this passage or the, the bearing that it should have on your life? And I think it is this. It reassures us of who we have become in Christ and what awaits us. This is a reassuring passage. All of Scripture convicts us of sin when we see the glory of God held up in His Word. But this is a passage that helps us to be reassured as believers. We read it as Christians, we are assured of who we are in Christ, and we are assured of what awaits us in him. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to go ahead and read all of chapter 8 up to this point, so we'll read Verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That was last week's text. Now we come to today's. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit, submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, praise God, Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You can go ahead and be seated. So if you believe in Christ's resurrection, then you believe in your future resurrection. Because they go together. They are inextricably tied together. Can never be separated. Christ raised, his followers raised. So let's pray at this point, let's go to God and let's ask him to uh, press this passage down on our hearts, to penetrate our hearts with it and grow us, reassure us, convict us where needed. And that as Daniel prayed earlier, that this time in God's word, which is very special, would bear fruit in all of our lives. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to come again to another portion of the sacred scriptures, these words that are from you. Father, we are reminded as we come to the Bible of the way that the Lord Jesus treated the Hebrew Bible, the way that he spoke of scripture as something that could not be broken. And even on fine points of debate, he would point out that the scripture is true and must take it for what it says. It is from God. Even the narration of Genesis in those first couple of chapters, Jesus says that God spoke these words. Father, we come now to the New Testament where we remi we're reminded of Jesus' words about the Spirit, that the Spirit would come and remind the disciples of all that he had taught and all the truth. And as Paul in his letter says, the Lord has said, these are commands of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. We are reading your very words, O oh God. What a precious treasure. We pray that they would be accurately and clearly taught and they would be carefully heard and digested. Father, we ask that your spirit would oversee this time that as your word is explained, that our minds would be enlightened, that the eyes of our hearts would be uh, enlightened to see the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those among us who are not believers, they are unconverted. Father, I pray that they would see that they do not have these eyes in their hearts. They are spiritually dead, not alive. And Father, I pray that by your mercy, by your grace, by the power of your regenerating spirit, that you would make alive those who are dead in trespasses and sins. God, we pray that you would do that mighty work among us this morning, and we ask that you would build up your people, that you would make this a stronger 
healthier church, that you would make us more loving and gracious to each other and more devoted to your gospel. God help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come first to the question, how it works. How it all works. So in order to do this, we need to take a closer look at verses 5 and 6. So go with me there, please. Verses 5 to 6, how it works. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Romans chapter 8 is saturated with mention of the Spirit. It's one of the things, you know, when you're interpreting passages of the Bible, you have to look for recurring words. If you get a a, a concentration of words in a passage, that is a clue. It tells you that's what this text is about. That's what separates this particular chunk of the text from what we just looked at or what we're going to look at in a moment This or later. This is a distinct unit of text. And what we find when we come to Romans 8, it is absolutely saturated with mention of the Holy Spirit, 20 or more occurrences. And most of those appear in these early verses. Paul is talking about life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. So I just want to read for you. And actually, I remember years ago, about six years ago, we were going through uh, the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. And we were in these chapters. And if you were there then or if you've read through this this past, if you were here then or you've read through this passage, you remember how much Jesus has to say as he is about to depart He's going, he's leaving them to go to the cross. And then after the cross, he'll be raised. But then after that, he'll appear to his disciples intermittently. And then he will go on and pass through the heavens. Sit down at the right hand of the Father, as Hebrews tells us. So in that farewell discourse, he wants to reassure them by letting them know about the Holy Spirit. So much theology about the coming of the Holy Spirit And here are a few texts that help us understand what Paul is assuming, what Paul is talking about to his Christian readers as he unpacks this in chapter 8. So here they are, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And listen to this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. How is it that the Father and the Son jointly come to make their home with believers or in believers? That is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He goes on in John 14, 26 to say, The Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So the Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Why do I put all of this emphasis where I am as I read these was because for about a thousand years, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Roman Catholic Church, uh, they split around a thousand AD. They, They split. And the big issue, theological issue of that split was whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father and the Son. So the Eastern Orthodox Church says that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, and the Western Church says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And as Protestants coming out of the Western Church, we have that teaching as well. Well, why is there such complication here? Well, it is because of this kind of language. The Father 
can be said, I mean, the Spirit is said to be the Spirit of God, Spirit of the Father, but also the Spirit of Christ. And we find that in our passage today in verse 9. He's called the Spirit of God, and in the very next sentence, the Spirit of Christ. The Son says, I will send him to you. And yet the Son says that the Father will send him in my name. So we see the language there as the interrelationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is put before us in the farewell discourse of John. Well, Paul is working with all of that as he talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. By the way, let me just say this. Don't call the Holy Spirit it. That's a big thing. You know, you hear it. You hear it all the time. Two common errors, two common errors that uh, you often hear in churches is uh, thanking the Father for dying for our sins. He didn't do that. The, the Son did. Okay? So the Father did not die for our sins. So be clear on that in your theology. And then the other thing is that, that the Spirit is a He, not an it, not a force, not an emanation, just some sort of uh, emanating force from the Father or the Son, the, uh, the mystery of the Trinity is profound, and we certainly aren't going to solve that this side of heaven, and I think really on the other side of heaven even. It is infinite. But what we recognize is that the Spirit is a person, and He is a He, not an It. So I'll just kind of download those before I, I move on. Those who are in Christ, this Paul's point, have the Spirit. They are in the Spirit, and here in verses 5 to 6, Paul makes a distinction between two kinds of people in these verses. Those who live according to the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. Let me say this, and we've said this a number of times. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people. There are those who live according to the flesh, or who are in the flesh, categorically, positionally, and existentially in the flesh. And there are those who are in the Spirit, according to the Spirit, who live and walk in the Spirit. Only two kinds of people in the world. This is another mistake we oftentimes make. We say as Christians, I did that in the flesh, versus I did that in the Spirit. Just to be precise, if you're a Christian, you never do anything in the flesh because you are in the Spirit. And yet being in the Spirit, we recognize that we sow to the flesh and we sin, we give over to indwelling sin, but we are not in the flesh. We are categorically, most certainly in the Spirit. And I hope that a text like this, Romans 8, will kind of seal that for you, make that clear. We're talking about identity here, not moment to moment. That's where Galatians 5 comes in, talking about do not walk in the, in the, in the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. Do not sow to the flesh, but sow to the Spirit. And Paul's point at the beginning of these verses can be summed up in one short Sentence. So here we go. For the beginning of these verses, one short sentence. Being determines thinking. Being determines thinking. Who we are by nature will show itself in how we think or how we orient our lives. It is actually really simple to know whether you are a Christian or not. You know, Satan is at work very strongly in the lives of believers trying to undermine our assurance of salvation, trying to get us to think we're not really saved. And he's very much at work deceiving unbelievers into thinking that they are saved. But it is actually quite simple when we read passages like this to discern whether or not we are believers. Specifically, the one who is in the flesh or lives according to the flesh will have a mind that is set on the things of the flesh. But the person who is in the spirit, lives according to the spirit, will have a mind that is set on the things of God. And I love the way that John Murray describes this. Now this is a little clunky and it's a little, 
kind of deep. And as I read it, uh, it's going to be kind of like uh, when Trey was quoting Jonathan Edwards, you know, the, the language is a little bit stilted, a little old, but try to follow this because I really do think John Murray has nailed it in this description. So here's what Paul is getting at. Quote, to mind the things of the flesh is to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects, the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affections, and purpose. Oh, is that you? Is that you? And the mind of the flesh is the dispositional complex, including not simply the activities of reason, but also those of feeling and will, patterned after and controlled by the flesh. That is what Paul means when he talks about a mind set on the flesh. In like manner, to mind the things of the Spirit is to have the things of the Holy Spirit as, once again, the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. And the mind of the Spirit is the dispositional complex, including the exercises of reason, feeling, and will, patterned after and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that's quite an academic definition, but I hope you get the point. It is the, the underlying and overarching orientation, bent, disposition, attitude of one's life. You either live for the world and yourself or you live for God. You're either one or the other. And it's actually pretty easy to know. And I imagine even as I read that, you know right now. You know right now. Whether the absorbing object of your life is the things of the living God. Yes, with indwelling sin and battle and fight. Or... I live for myself. I live for this life. I live for this world. God is not the center. You know, if you're honest with yourself, which of those is the case? And if you don't, cry out to God. Ask for discernment. Ask for help and seek Him. Knock and the door will be open. Ask. And you will find, seek, and you will, you will find, he will answer. God is gracious. That's why Christ came into the world, to save sinners, to save those whose, whose absorbing object is self and the world. Christ came for the sick, sinners like us. So being determines mindset. And then in verse 6, Paul explains where these different mindsets or orientations lead. He, he puts a contrast between death on the one hand and life and peace on the other. A death, of course, understood multi, in a multifaceted way, but it culminates in separation from God forever in hell. That's the crowning achievement, if you will, of death. We see it in spiritual death in this world, an absence of recognition of God. We see it in our physical death, the mortality and sickness that we find in our world. We see the brokenness of our created order. We see death even extending into the animal kingdom. But ultimately, death is separation from God, which culminates in hell. Hell is the place where all human beings who live in the flesh go after they die. And ultimately will be placed in their bodies, as Daniel chapter 12 says, one day their souls will wait in hell for greater hell. Wait in hell for the resurrection of their body. Yes, the unbelievers will be raised too, but only to stand before God and be cast into the lake of fire. That's sobering. But that's what the Bible is clear about when it talks about the destiny of those who are in the flesh. So if that described you earlier and you said, no, I'm in the flesh. I live for myself. I live for this world. That's where you're headed. That's where that road goes. It just dumps out in hell. But by contrast, those who are in the spirit, who have a mind set 
on the Spirit, their future culminates in being with God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Peace. Peace with God. Reconciliation with God. Relationship with God forever. In His presence, unending bliss. What a contrast. Wow. This is why we, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, we plead with people, be reconciled to God. So that's the basic contrast that Paul wants to lay out. This is how it works. When we talk about being in the flesh or living in the flesh or being in the spirit or living in the spirit, this is how it works. This is the dynamic at work within each of those spheres, if you will. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. You can't be both. And this determines your mindset. And each mindset has an outcome. So why is it that being in the flesh is associated with death? We're following Paul's logic coming out of verses five and six. Why is it that being in the flesh is associated with death? And that is where Paul goes in the next two verses where he describes life in the flesh or who we were. So that leads us to our second point, who we were. Look with me at verses seven to eight. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. Wow, how illuminating this, these two verses are. The Christian must never forget who he or she was. We must never forget who we were. Our gratitude to God, our graciousness to others, our humility as we grow as Christians, all of these things are tied to remembering what God saved us from. If we forget what God saved us from, we become prideful. We forget what God saved us from. By his grace, sheer grace, we become filled with our own self-righteousness. We lack grace and mercy and sympathy toward other people. Remembering what God saved us from is an essential part of living the Christian life. Life, And here, again in Romans, we get a description of that old life. And praise God for those of us who are Christians, this is old. This is old news. This is the old way, the old life. But as I said before, maybe for you this morning, this is not old. Is it old for you? What's being described in these verses? Is this the old news? Or is this today when you woke up as you sit here? This morning, it is life in the flesh or according to the flesh with that fleshly mindset and orientation that we just talked about. This is not only who we were, it is also who every person apart from Christ is. And this, this saddens us for those we love. We know people in our lives, we have people in our lives whom we deeply, deeply love. And some of them are not Christians. They do not know Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They are in the flesh. They live according to the flesh. And all that mindset and all that death that I just described is theirs. Listen to what John MacArthur says. Even an unbeliever whose life seems to be a model of good works is not capable of doing anything truly good because he is not motivated or empowered by God and because his works are produced by the flesh for self-centered reasons and can never be to God's glory. Is that, is that something you've really reckoned with? That where there is no worship, there is no good. You may be struggling with Christianity a little bit intellectually because you, you know people who are quote unquote good people, really good people, 
really moral people, really upstanding people, honest people. And they're, and they're unbelievers. They're, they're, they're non-Christians. And then you know some Christians who aren't even close to that unbeliever that you know. And, and you think, I mean, what in the world is going on here? I mean, is it really true that that person is, is, is death and darkness and on their way to eternal destruction? I mean, this is an intellectual struggle for us as we get to know people who are unbelievers, and especially as, as we have them in our own families and, and we have close friends who actually treat us quite well and who do kind things for us, and sometimes much kinder than those who are in the church. What do we, what do, we do with that? But here's what you have to understand. Where there is no worship and there can't be in the flesh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Paul will go on and say in Romans 14, and here he says it, this way as well, where there is no worship, where, where things are not done, where life is not lived for the glory of God, for his magnification, for his praise, as gratitude to him as the giver, where that does not happen in a person's heart, there is no real good. There are good effects there are selfish motives that create actions that have, by God's grace, his common grace, good effects. But no good in them. Where there is no worship, there is no good. And in fact, I should say it this way, where there is false worship, because there's never no worship. There's never the absence of worship. Remember Romans 1. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We exchange the glory of God for other things. So in every heart there is worship. It's just when we're in the flesh, it is not worship of God. So what does Paul say about this state, this condition and remember, he is answering the question, why is this a state of death? Why is this in the fleshness a state of death? And the short answer is this. To be in the flesh, to live according to the flesh, is to be in a state of hostility to God. Let me say that again. To be in the flesh, to live according to to the flesh is to be in a state of hostility to God. Why is that? Why, why, why would Paul make that argument? Because it is to be in a state of rebellion and inability with regard to God's law. To be in a state of rebellion and inability with regard to God's law is to be hostile to God. They won't follow it, and they can't follow it. That's what Paul says in these verses, verses 7 and 8. Those who are in the flesh won't follow God's law and can't follow God's law. Notice, to be against God's law is to be against God himself. It's not as though there's God and then there's this law over here. And God, of course, has to abide by his own law and and everybody else abides by this thing over here. God holds this thing out. This is separate from him. No, no, no. The law is an expression. It is the expression of his own character, of his own glory as lived out in the person of his son, but as lived out in human beings. Lived out in Adam and Eve before they sinned. Lived out perfectly in Christ and lived out in us progressively until one day fully when we stand before God. To be against God's law is to be against God himself. Notice this also. By the way, let me just say this. We talk about the topic of homosexuality and people say, well, that's in Leviticus. That's God's law. And it's in Romans and it's in 1 Corinthians 6. Homosexuality is sin. It is an abomination against God. The Bible's clear on that. And you can't just go, well, that was then. That was in Leviticus. God's law is an expression of his holy character and his will for human life. 
If Leviticus says that homosexuality and bestiality and so forth are an abomination to him and that it is sin, then to defy that is to be hostile to God. To not submit to that law, to not submit to God's teaching, his truth, his law, is to be hostile to the very face of the living God. That is Paul's logic. That is what Paul is saying. Notice this also, to be a non-Christian is to be in a state of defiance against God and his law at the core. Now what does this mean? This is pretty striking. The unbeliever is not merely ignorant of God's law. Kind of just walking around, confused, foggy-minded, not really. It's just ignorance. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what we find here. This is not mere ignorance. And it is not mere passive omission. It's not as though it's like, well, I was supposed to do that, but I got distracted. I made a mistake. Passive. No. See this. See this. What we are talking about is active rebellion against the living God. That's what sin is. It is active rebellion against God. And that is the condition, the plight, the state that the unbeliever, the non-Christian, the person who does not have the spirit, who's not been covered in Christ's blood, that is the position they are in. This should raise our awareness. It should fuel our evangelism. It should make us more realistic about the great cost and should teach us of the great peril that our children are in apart from Jesus Christ. I was telling our two oldest children this week during a family worship time that if, if they were in, that, that our job as a mom and a dad while they're in our home is to tell them, we were talking about the ark, is to tell them to get on the ark. That's our job as parents is to, to point them to safety. Isn't that what we do all the time? Stay out of the road. Keep your finger out of the socket. Don't jump in the fireplace and so forth. Don't put your face in the dog's mouth, especially if it's a Rottweiler or something like that. These are the kinds of things that we tell our kids. Why? Because we are saying, go to safety. Our job as parents is to constantly call our children to get on the ark of salvation. To get off of the land into the ark because the storm is coming. Destruction is coming. And they too, our precious offspring, will be swept away into that eternal hell apart from Christ. If they don't get on the ark, they will perish in their sins. That's our job as parents. The main thing we do as parents. So whether you can detect it or not, this is exactly what is going on in the heart of every person who is not born again by the Spirit of God. Every non-Christian. This is not intolerance of diversity. This is just truth. This is reality. To be in the flesh is to be in this state no matter how many layers of facade there may be. We understand the human condition. As the Bible has made it so clear. And we've experienced this in our own living. Paul ends by saying that such a person cannot please God. I want to say that again. Paul, it's clearly, read it, it's right here. Such a person cannot please God. Now, theologically, what this means are two things, basically. Total depravity and total inability. Notice that. Total depravity and total inability. An unbeliever cannot please God. Where did the idea come from? That an unbeliever living in the flesh... Walking along in hostility to God, defying his law, who cannot, Paul says, but cannot please him, just all of a sudden decides within himself or herself to love God, to, 
to, to trust in God, to follow God, to delight in his law. That is not biblical. Listen clearly to what Paul says, cannot please God. Totally depraved and totally unable to keep God's law. When we say, let me say this to us, church. When we say we are a reformed church, we're not just trying to be obnoxious by putting some sort of label on ourselves. When we say we are a reformed church, we are simply saying we believe this. That's it. We're simply saying that we actually believe that God is sovereign in saving sinners. And that unless he says, let there be light in the heart of a person, there will be no light. Unless he, by his spirit, comes to indwell a person and regenerate a person, there will only be in fleshness. There will be no turning to God. There will be no decision for Christ. It comes only by the spirit. That is what we mean when we say we are a reformed church. But Paul's focus is not on describing unbelievers. We've seen a lot so far about the unbeliever, about the non-Christian. That's not Paul's focus even. He's done this extensively in earlier chapters. Nor is his focus really to remind Christians of who they were. That's not Paul's main objective The main objective Paul has in these verses is to reassure Christians of who they are now in Christ. And that brings us to our final point this morning, who we are. Look with me, if you will, at verses 9 through 11. Who we are. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Who we are. Are. We love to hear language like this. We love to be reminded of who we are in Christ, or more importantly, whose we are. Just as verse 1 tells us that we are free from condemnation in Christ Jesus, these verses remind us that we are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Getting descriptions of who we are here. God really does live inside of believers. You know, that is, a, that is a truth that never, never ceases to amaze. Familiarity breeds contempt. Oh, all this Christian language. How familiar we are with that. Yes, of course. God lives in his people. But do you, do you really understand the gravity of that? When you, all you have to do is read one little scene of a million plus people gathered around this little tabernacle, a million plus people in the wilderness gathered around this little tent of meeting and doing all of these very precise things carefully and fearfully to be in the presence of God. And we are told not just that we are in the presence of God now, but that he actually lives inside of us. That's amazing. Is that amazing to you? That is what it means to be a Christian, to have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. Notice here we are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. This is what it means to be a Christian. This language is kind of interchangeable. There's a sense in in which you can think about who we are with respect to who is in us, and there's a sense in which we can think about who we are with respect to what we have stepped into. Both of those are true. Two sides of the coin. And Paul's very point has been to explain that this is the only way we could have any positive orientation towards God. Let me say that again. Paul's point has been to explain that this is the only way we could have any positive orientation towards God. 
God. If you love God, if you desire to serve God, if you enjoy God, if you delight in his word, listen to this. It is only, only because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If that is true of you, then that is evidence, strong evidence that you have the Holy Spirit, that you're a Christian. Is that your life? Be assured, Christian, if that is your life, be assured and go forth in that assurance of faith. Be like the the person that the writer of Hebrews is talking to. Hold fast to your confession without wavering. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Christ. If he, if these things are at work in your soul, then you have the Holy Spirit because trust me, because of what this says, trust God's word. If he wasn't in there, these would not be there either. It would be only the flesh. You might enjoy meditation. You might enjoy charity. You might get a sense of satisfaction from helping others or Uh, at least thinking that that's what you're all about in your heart or spending time alone in solitude, meditating on, on, on lofty ideas like an ancient philosopher or a Buddhist monk. That may be what you enjoy and those sorts of things kind of bring you satisfaction. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God himself. I'm talking about God's word itself. Only by the Holy Spirit is this possible. Without him, we are in verses seven and eight, folks. We are in verses seven and eight. But with him, we are in verses nine through 11. But Paul doesn't make this transition without calling his readers to test themselves. And that is why he says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the kind of passage where we pause And you test yourself. And that's what I've been doing this morning. I've been trying to ask questions that get you to think about your spiritual condition. Where you really are with the Lord. Are you truly saved? Are you truly born again? Are you truly in Christ? Those are the sorts of questions that we are meant to ask ourselves as we come to a text like this. So as we finish up this morning, how does Paul describe this state of being in the Spirit? Answer, very briefly, it is a state of certainty. Being in the Spirit is a state of certainty. If we have the Spirit, listen to this, it's amazing. If we have the Spirit, everything we just described, we can be 100% assured, not 99, no, no, no. What's 99%? Not 99.9. We can be 100% assured that the same Spirit by whom the Father raised Jesus from the dead will likewise raise us up from the dead. 100% certainty. For now, we carry around these mortal bodies, and because of that, we must be careful to heed the words of Romans 6:12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We carry around these mortal bodies. And as those who do so, we are experiencing the deterioration of these bodies as they share in the fallenness of this world in Adam. We get sick, we get old, we die. 2 Corinthians 4:16. Paul says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Guess what? We all have to waste away. Born in this fallen world, born in Adam, carrying around mortal bodies in Adam. Don't be surprised when you start wasting away. That's what happens. That's what it is. But Paul says, though, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Day. You ever seen that person who's on their deathbed and they're just struggling to even breathe and yet you see their joy in the Lord? That's what Paul's talking about. As the doctor turned preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it, the moment we enter into this world 
and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. So we're not surprised when we get sick. So one of the problems with the prosperity gospel is it ignores this entire bit of theology. We're, we're wasting away. We're, God doesn't promise us that, that this mortal body is going to be healed from diseases and, and problems. We are in a, in a state of wasting away in our bodies. But though this is the case, we are being renewed day by day in our inner being. But remember what Paul said back in chapter 7, verses 24 to 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is exactly what Paul unpacks here. As he reassures those who have the Spirit that they will one day be raised. Let me read it again. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yes, dead, mortal body. But there is life in us because we have the Spirit. He is life. And that life is applied to us because of righteousness. Because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us whereby we are justified before God. So as we close, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a transformed people. We are an empowered people. And we are most certainly a hopeful people. And this is how we are to live our lives. Out of these great realities. That is what this text calls us to. That is what this text reassures us in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Thank you for shedding this light on who we are in Christ. We need to constantly be reminded of these things. Father, thank you for accentuating so much for us through this passage the utter dependence we have on the Holy Spirit and the absolute gratitude that we should have because of what you, by your sovereign grace, apart from any act of our own, have done to make us your own. God, apart from your regenerating power, apart from your sovereign electing and acting grace in our lives, we would be only in the flesh. We would be in the flesh. Father, we thank you that that enmity and that corruption and destruction that describes those in the flesh has been removed from us In Christ Jesus. God, we have so much to bring you praise for. We have so much to be thankful for every second of this short life. God, help us be, as is said so much in the New Testament, people who are giving thanks to you, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us in this. And Lord, I pray this morning deeply, God, for any who's here, who is here, who realized this very morning that he or she is not a Christian. God, help them to see that this is a wonderful realization because the very act of seeing this is your grace at work. And God, I pray that as they have now seen this, that they will not allow Satan to come like the bird over the field and just pick up that little seed and carry it away so that it has no time to take root. Father, I pray instead that they would come and talk with one of us here in the church, that they would share what you're doing in their heart, that they would be earnest about that, 
that they would pray to you throughout the day, that they, they would even take an hour this afternoon and go, go find a place uh, alone and just talk to you about what they've heard. Read this text and meditate on it and cry out to you for mercy. God, would you please not allow what you have done in their hearts this morning to prove fruitless. And God, we know you're sovereign over these things, so we trust you, we ask you for your grace, and we pray now as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we meditate on Christ crucified, that our hearts would just once again find all of these glorious realities situated in Jesus Christ, and that our praise and glorying would be in him alone for what he did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.